This first lesson is foundational. It's not the revelation. It is foundation to the revelation of who we are in God individually and who we are in God collectively. And there are two types of faith, just like there are two types of relationship with God. And those two types of relationship with God are clearly described in Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 29. Uh, in verse 28, someone asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered him, Mark twelve twenty nine, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And this is all part of the first commandment, the great commandment, the greatest commandment. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so these two commandments lay the foundation for the most basic, purest principles of what it means to be a child of God, a son of God, a part of the body of Christ, in the two different perspectives that are absolutely essential for us to participate with God in. And if I'm not participating with God in both uh, perspectives or dimensions, as the first or the two greatest commandments discuss, then there is a legitimate basis for questioning my walk with God, or dare I say my salvation, because the Bible says the disobedient are not going to enter into those gates. And these are commandments. I didn't call them commandments. Jesus did. They're not only commandments, but they are the first two commandments. And in another place, Jesus said, on these commandments, all of the word of God, all the commands of God, can dare I say, all of our faith and relationship with God, all of it hangs on these two things, these two commandments as the supporting elements for our walk with God. They also are the supporting elements of the revelation of, first of all, who we are in God individually and who we are in God collectively and of what God wants to do through us individually and collectively. And so uh, he says, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. There is... Uh, there are accusations of extremism today uh, that if you teach and believe that we are not supposed to run our own lives, that we are not supposed to make our own decisions, that we're supposed to seek to please God in everything, that that is extreme. Well, for those that hold that position, I have bad news for you because 
the Greek words in the second half of the greatest commandment uh, goes farther than any extreme I could take it to. Uh, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all. This is not the Greek word pas, P-A-S, which is the normal word for all. This is the Greek word that means the whole of, the absolute entirety of, with absolutely nothing held back or uh, left out. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with the whole of thy heart, with the whole of thy soul, with the whole of thy mind, with the whole of thy strength. For this is the first commandment. Now, I realize there are many who love to play uh, intellectual gymnastics with the word of God to explain away what the Bible is saying, to make it say something that it does not, so that they can excuse themselves and their followers for living uh, a life that is less than what the Word of God says we are supposed to be and do and live. That's called the blind leading the blind. I think one of the most important principles in approaching the Word of God is to understand that God says what He means, and He means what He says. So the first commandment has to do with our relationship with God. But that becomes the foundational principle and the absolute essential command uh, upon which even the second one is based. I've taught many times, and I'm not going to any great depth today over this, but the word love here in the Greek is agape. It's not eros. It's not philio. It is agape. God is agape. God is not eros. God is not filio. God is agape. And the only way to have agape with which I can love God or agape God is to receive agape from God. First John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. But the implication there is it's more than he ought, more than that he offered his love to us. But we believed and received that love. First John 4.16, we have known and believe the love that the Father has toward us. The Greek word there for know is to know experientially. And the second word for believe doesn't mean to mentally accept or acknowledge. It means I put all of my trust in, all of my reliance upon, and I cling to whatever it is I am believing in. So even that word does not leave room for a partial approach to God. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, that we are to set our affections on things above and not on things on the earth. And that we should have our lives dead and that they should be hid with Christ in God so that we're not trying to draw people to ourselves and our personality and our skills and our talents 
But we're supposed to hide all of that in God so that whenever he uses our giftings, our talents, our abilities, our intellects, people don't hear or see man. They hear and see God, which leads us to the second commandment. The second commandment is like namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, let me, let me, before I comment, let me, let me, um, read you a couple other translations just to give the full flavor here. The expanded Bible says the second command is this. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The easy to read version says the second most important command is this. Love your neighbor the same as you love yourself. The uh, Passion Translation says, the second is this, you must love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. Well, you're going to do that. Regardless of what the source of your love is, eros, which is flesh, philio, which is human emotion, or agape, which is God, God is agape, Agape is God. God is love. Love is agape. Uh, to whatever degree, whatever source I love, I receive love from is the uh, source I'm going to use to give love. And there's only one of those three that is acceptable to God. We are to agape him with our whole heart, whole soul, whole mind, whole strength. And we are to agape our neighbor as we agape ourselves. Now, in most English translations, there is a word left out because of the grammatical rules of redundancy in both the Greek and the English. And that word is love. We don't say thou shalt love thy neighbor as you love or thy love, you love yourself because it's implied. We automatically know it's there because that's the, that's how the language we speak is structured. But a couple of translations I've read too and others that I didn't take the time to read go so far as to make the point to put in the redundant word for emphasis. So I am to, if I'm to agape you, I can only agape you as I have received agape for me and thereby that agape gives me the only true worth I have for myself that God accepts. The world talks about self-esteem and self-love and all of that. Well, I'm here to tell you something right now. <laughs> When the only love I have for me is my love for me or love that I get from somebody else because of Eros, I give them, I, I, I love them because of what I'm going to get back from them. So I don't love them for them. I love them for what I'm going to get back or filio where I, 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 I love them, uh, with the understanding they love me in return and they have failed to love me with filio if I have given them filio. But agape love isn't like that, you see. Agape love, I give it no matter if I ever get it back or not. And that's what God has done with all of the, us. He has loved us 
God recommends his love to us, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. God recommends his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he goes on to talk about, you know, that some would uh, die for a, rarely would someone die for a good man. Some would even die for a, uh, excuse me, a righteous man. Some would even die for a good man. But while we were, while we're enemies of the cross, while we're enemies of the cross, Romans Again, five verses six through ten. While we're the, we were the enemies of God, He died for us. And He gives us that love or offers that love to us unconditionally. Now, but He, he doesn't stop there, of course. He, he loves us in con- unconditionally and we can only get His love by receiving it without earning it or deserving it. So his love for me lets me love myself with his love to the point that I let him save me. And God loves me so much that I have to let him love me as his gift. But he loves me too much to leave me like I am. He loves me just like I am, whether I ever come to him or not. But he loves me too much to leave me like I am. So this is the love I have for me. I love me enough to want to be saved. And if I love me that much, the command is I have to love you that much. If I love me enough, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. If I love me enough, I want to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to fellowship with him every day. I want to commune with him in prayer and worship and praise. I want to be a part of him, a part of his life, a part of his plan, a part of his purpose. I want to be a fellow laborer. I want to be a harvester in his field. I want, I want to be a part of his kingdom. I want to walk with him. I want to talk with him. I want, to, I want him to walk with me. I want to hear him talk to me. If I want all that for me, Unless I'm doing that out of selfishness, which is feeling, which is eros, or simply as a bargain with you, which is filio, I'll love you with emotion if you'll love me back with emotion. But he gives me this gift that he offered before I ever knew him. This gift of his love. That love is supposed to change the way I see myself so we get into the whole subject the basis for the whole subject of what this teaching is going to be today in the next five days if i love god and i I, if if he if i receive his love if i believe his love if if I receive his love, if I let him love me, if I don't give him the stiff arm and I let him love me, his love will begin to change the way I see myself. And the entire basis for all ministry is not only that first and foremost, I see God and know who he is. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. But I also see that because he is the Lord God, God the Father, the creator of the world, the universe, 
that he is worthy of me giving my whole self to him. But if I let his love do that in me, I can't stop there and obey the second commandment. Because now that I have received his love, now that I see what I am worth to him, that if I was the only soul in the world that was lost, he would have still died for me. If you were the only soul in the whole world that was lost, no matter what you've done that you shouldn't have done, no matter what things you have not done that you should have done, he would have still died for you. He did die for you. He died for me. That's his love. For God so loved the world. But he didn't love the world as a mass. He's God. He could love each one of us at the exact same time, but do so individually. And he did that. He doesn't save the mass of mankind. He saves mankind one human at a time because it's personal between him and us. That's what his love's all about. There is nothing more personal in this whole world than God's love for me, God's love for you. And I have to respond to that love personally. But again, I can't respond to that love. Receive that love. Romans chapter 5 verse 5, which is the verse just before the ones I was basically referring to, Romans 5 verses 6 through 10. It says, hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So when I receive his love, when I receive his spirit by the baptism of the Holy Ghost, I am re literally receiving the love of God into my life because God is love. And when I receive the spirit of God, I'm baptized with the spirit of God. I'm baptized with God. If I'm baptized with God, I'm baptized with the spirit of God. If I'm baptized with the spirit of God, I'm baptized with the love of God. And if I love me enough because he loved me that much and revealed to me what I am worth to him, then I'm going to give myself to him wholeheartedly. And those that only are Christians part-time, they go to church, maybe they even pray every day. Maybe they read a few scriptures every day. But the rest of the day, they make their own decisions and run their own life. They are part-time lovers of God. They don't do it with their whole being. They don't do it. But the love of God is constantly working in my life and your life, trying to draw us to the place that we're in obedience to the greatest commandment, which means I understand that I was lost and could not save myself. And so therefore, he gave himself, his life, his blood, to redeem me out of bondage to sin, but not to now be free to run my own life, do my own thing. He bought me out of bondage to sin so that I could give, be a part of him with my whole being. That means there's no part of the word that I dismiss as unimportant. There's no part of the word that I don't seek his empowerment to obey every day. Why? 
because God came to us as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I can't come to God anyway except through the Word, by the Word, by faith in the Word, because it's the Word that tells me. I wasn't there 2,000 years ago when he hung on the cross in my place. The way that I know, knew, first knew about it was to hear the Word preached. When the Word is preached about his death, burial, and resurrection, we call that the gospel or the good news. That's the first way I even knew about that. But when I heard the Word preached, there was a witness I didn't understand what that, what that was I was feeling, but it was the Spirit of God loving me with His love as a witness that this word, this gospel I'm hearing is true, which then drew me. The Bible says we're drawn with, 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 with cords or bands of His love. We're drawn to God. There's a drawing. His love connects in here, draws us to God. We don't find God on our own. He's not lost. He finds us and draws us to him if we will let him. Now, he's not going to violate my will or yours. And so if he's drawing me and I say no, he's going to honor that. But the one thing you and I do not want to do is make a habit of telling him no, putting ourselves in the place that we convince him It's no use. He said, my spirit will not always strive with man. So the love of God gives us reverence for God. The King James calls that the fear of the Lord. So while he loves me, I also understand that the accountability and the responsibility for rejecting that love. How can I reject the love of God without rejecting God? And how can I reject God without there being some consequences to that? And in his love, he clearly, plainly tells us what all those consequences are. So if I let him love me, that love will cause me to want to return that love to him. And it won't be my emotions I love him with. It will be The love he gave me will empower me to give that love back to him. But it's never supposed to stop there. He didn't love me because I'm worthy. He didn't love me because I earned it. He loved me because I'm his creation. I was made in his image. And he wants fellowship with you and me. That's called reconciliation. The love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And in that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The love of Christ constrains, it compels, it draws me, it causes me to want to give myself completely to him. Now, my flesh isn't going to want to do that. And my human will's got to make a decision. Is it going to do what the flesh lusts and desires to do? Or is it going to do what the love of God, the sweet, gentle, kind, merciful, gracious love of God is drawing me to do? 
But again, if I love myself like that, the, the Bible tells me that God expects that I will give myself to him for him then to be a conduit for the love that, that I've received and that is the only power I have to keep his commandments in a way that pleases him, that that same love is going to compel me to become a conduit for him to love others through me. And that love is going to call me and you to become conduits of prayer, to pray for the lost, to be delivered from the power of the kingdom of darkness, from the blindness that's on their mind and hearts, and from the spiritual blindness that's on their spiritual eyes, and from the spiritual deafness that's upon their ears, so that they can hear what God is saying and see what God is doing and feel the love of God and be enabled to respond to that. And all of that comes back to this. If I don't let God's love change the way I see myself, not as this mistake from the past, not as this flawed person from the past, not as this person that's done all these terrible things from the past, not as the person that has neglected to do all the things that I should have done in the past, but this brand new person, this born brand new person, by his blood, by his name, by the power of his spirit, the resurrecting power of his spirit, that's supposed to change the way I see myself. So now I know I am worthy to be used of him to communicate his love to this world, first in prayer and then through the ministry of the word. Why? Because he makes me worthy. He makes me worthy. His love makes me good enough for him to use. If if we have any definition or image of ourselves outside of God's revelation to us of who we are in him individually and collectively, then we will never be or never become all that he purposed us to be in him and all we will never see him do through us all that he has purposed to do through us as a part of his plan and purpose and his kingdom in the earth in these last days. So every image of ourselves that is from our past, every image of ourselves, every way we see ourselves that God did not birth, that God did not form in us, must die. And this new image of ourselves as a born again, loved by God, received and accepted by God, child of God, who can now, as Jesus said, he that believeth on me, 
The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Or the signs of the believer. These signs shall follow them that believe. Mark chapter 16, verse 17. In my name they shall cast out devils. As a believer created in the image of God as this newborn person, I have power over the kingdom of darkness, over demonic spirits. They shall speak with new tongues. And James teaches us that if our tongue is tamed by the Spirit, we now have the power through the Holy Ghost to tame our entire body. If we, they shall pick up serpents, that doesn't mean on purpose handle snakes, but he gives us power over the natural kingdom of this world that we can be protected in him. If they drink anything, it shall hurt, not hurt them. And it, it's assumed in this context that someone is trying to poison you. So as Paul said in Hebrews chapter 13, the Lord said he would never leave us nor forsake us. Therefore, we may boldly say, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And then finally, the fifth one, the believer shall lay hands on the sick. The believer not some specially gifted person in a coliseum with their name in lights as this unique person. But every believer shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover because that fifth thing is, is this new person in Christ. God gives us power over sickness and disease. That's this new person he created you and I to be. Well, why don't I see those things happen in my life? Because we're trying to be a child of God while still seeing ourselves as this unlovable person. How can I be unlovable when God loved me? If anybody had a right to not love me because of the way I've lived in the past, God does. David prayed in Psalms 51 after he had committed adultery and then had the woman's husband put on the front lines in a place where he would be killed and God called that murder. David prayed and the child died. David prayed against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. If anybody has a right to reject us, because of our past. It is God. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's not only supposed to just take away the, the jeopardy we are in because of the penalty upon sin spoken to Adam in the garden before they ever sinned. The day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. The prophet Ezekiel says in a couple of different places, the soul that sinneth shall surely die. Paul said that she, not meaning just women, but they that live in pleasure are dead while they live because they, they're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And they're dead while they're having pleasure in the flesh. 
They have no communication with the giver and no connection with the giver of life. But God resurrected us out of death. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Uh, says, and it does in a moment, I'll, I'll, I'll be there. Uh, while we were dead in trespasses and sins, we were quickened by Christ Jesus. His verse 4 of chapter 2 talks about his abundant mercies and his great love wherewith he loved us because chapter 2 of Ephesians those first three verses tells just how bad off as of a sinner every one of us was or is but the Lord Jesus Christ died in our place shed his blood gave his life to pay the penalty of our sins so he could redeem us out of death into life that's supposed to change how you and I see each other. But too many believers are letting their past cheat them out of a present and a future in God. Because we're called to be a part of Him. We're called to be a part of His purpose, His plan, His kingdom. We're called to be a part of the fulfilling of his promises in the earth. But too many, the only amount of faith they've got is just to try to make it to a couple of church services each week and somehow endure sitting there through all of that and the, 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 the worship or praise or entertainment, whatever it is, and our little talks, our narratives, or our sermons, or our speeches, or our oratory, but they don't change. And some preachers have accepted that and are preaching that it's okay. What a total disgrace to the love of God and to the death of Jesus on the cross to preach to people that they could be saved without changing. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if my mind is changed, my actions will be changed because all of my actions, good and bad, are a product of decisions that are made in my mind. And if I'm supposed to be saved, but I still have that old mind in me that is dictating that I live in whatever way I'm, I'm living in, God does, God's not pleased with that. Oh, but you don't have to earn your salvation. No, but if that salvation there, it's going to demonstrate itself in our lives. Because the verse that we don't, that too many don't even get to because they don't want to get to it because they quit in reading Ephesians 2, when it talks about we're saved by grace and not by works. Oh, yeah. Lest any man should boast. But what about the next verse? Verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Well, if there are no good works that he is producing in and through us, 
Are we saved? No, none of my initiated, none of my flesh or human empowered works can save me. But God's empowered works in me and through me demonstrates the president, the presence of saving faith. Philippians 2.13 For it is God that worketh in us, both to will and to do of that which pleases Him. If I'm not desiring to please God instead of pleasing me, and if I'm not doing the things that please God rather than pleasing me, then God is not at work in me. And God can't be in me without being at work in me. Can't be. So what is one of the main things God wants to do? He wants to change how you see yourself. One of the most well-known situations here is here. Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Some say Elias, and others Jeremiah, and one of the prophets, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? The first part of the great first commandment is, to know who God is. Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now this was a Jew. And the Jews don't believe but in one God and one person of God. So when this Jew, who is still a Jew, he didn't become a what we would call a Christian till the day of Pentecost on the first day of the New Testament because according to Hebrews 9, a testament is not in effect or force till after the death of the testator and Jesus Christ did not die till the end of Matthew, the end of Mark, the end of Luke, and end of John. And the law and the prophets were still in effect. That's why Jesus only said that he was ministering to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Because it was still about the law. And he said, I haven't come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill the law. Because without him fulfilling the law, he was not qualified to be a innocent sacrifice on the cross for us. So Peter, a Jew, still living by the law, says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the word Christ here in the English is the transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which is the transliteration of the Hebrew word Messiah. And who did the Jews believe Messiah was? They believed he was the one true and living God manifest in the flesh to save mankind. They didn't believe he was another person of God. They didn't believe he was a second God or a third God. They believed he was the one true and living God 
manifested to save mankind. That promise was made all the way back in the garden. When the war was declared in the garden, where God said to Satan that uh, your seed is going to bruise the woman's seed heel, and her seed, which was referring to Jesus Christ, is going to bruise your seed's head. So war was declared. But the Messiah was prophesied as a part of that whole warfare and ultimately winning that warfare concept. And a whole lot of Christians want to obey nothing at best but the first commandment. They don't want to be a part of the second commandment because that is the commandment of warfare. Is loving the lost like I was loved and praying and, and ministering the word to whatever degree that gives the people of this world a chance to be saved. But again, if I see myself as a sinner rather than a born-again child of God, I will not let him use me like that. So Simon Peter answered, verse 16, and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter. The Lord just changed his name. He didn't just change who Peter was going to be. He proved it by changing his name. He's no longer a fisherman in God's mind. He is an apostle. They were actually called apostles before the day of Pentecost. They were called disciples before the day of Pentecost. And so everything that follows is based on the revelation of Peter specifically and us by principle knowing who we are in God. That's why Saul who was confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, later became Paul as a demonstration of how much his life changed in God. Well, I'm not Peter and I'm not Paul. No, but God loves you just as much and he loves me just that much. And he doesn't have to change my natural name for people to be able to see how much God has changed us. And he cannot use you and I to do all he wants to do and to pray with the authority and the power that he wants to use us to pray with and to speak the word with the authority and the power that he wants us to speak it with as long as we still see ourselves as in, as the person formed by the old man. That old man is dead. That old man was buried 
He died in repentance. That old man was buried in the waters of baptism in the name of Jesus. That old man no longer exists. There was a new man resurrected by the resurrecting power of the baptism of the Holy Ghost when it came into us. Romans chapter 6. That's the will of God, you see. That's the will of God. Not just to save me from my sin, but to give me a new present and a new future in Him. So that not only am I now His Son, not only am I now saved, not only do I have a new life, but now He has a new instrument, a new conduit, a new means whereby to demonstrate his love, to demonstrate his power, to demonstrate his word to a lost and dying world. So he said, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What a promise. So he didn't just make this promise to Peter, but to the church. And the the promises he made here where he started speaking to Peter, he continued speaking to the whole church. And I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Not the gates of hell shall not prevail against you, Peter, because you're only a part of this church. But the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, the church. And I will give unto thee, and I don't believe he meant to Peter alone, but to the entire church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we know that the word you can be both singular and plural, depending on the context, and it can be both singular singular and plural at the same time. can speak of a collective body and the individuals of that body simultaneously but here's the power of this revelation to peter and this is the power of the revelation to you and i that no matter what peter's struggles were going forward between this moment and his struggles were shown before we could even get out of matthew chapter 16 he got rebuked by jesus because he was speaking in the flesh as prompted by the devil and he didn't discern it was the devil before chapter 16 can be over with. What kept Peter going on? Why did Jesus say to them, to, to him, the night of the crucifixion? Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you his wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when thou art converted, when you are brought back into the place I put you in right now, strengthen your brethren. Well, what was that that brought him back? He had a word. God revealed to him who he was in God. It is that revelation that will keep you and I not only going so we can be saved, 
But it is that revelation that will cause us to seek God and give ourselves to God that we might be his conduits. Every single one of us, not just those that are called to that unscriptural terminology, the pulpit ministry. Give me book, chapter, and verse where it says we are called to the pulpit ministry. Where does that say that in the Bible? It's not. We're all called to the ministry. Some who are in the body of Christ are gifted to lead the entire body. But everybody in the, in the body is in the priesthood. Everybody is in the body. And what is the priesthood? The priesthood is to represent man, God to mankind. To bring God to mankind as God's conduits. But I'm not going to let that happen. If the, the person I see myself to be, even after I'm saved, is this flawed, stained, broken mistake of a person who just can't get it right. I have to see myself. My mind has to be renewed. I have to see myself. I have to war. By the grace of God, the power of God, the blood of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the word of God, against every thought that would try to bring me into captivity. But I would bring those thoughts into captivity to Christ. That I would cast cast down every, every lying imagination and bring it down, cast it down, so that rather than live by those lies, I live by the truth of who Jesus says I am in him. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away. All things have become new. Oh, I know there are days that this flesh, we give into this flesh consciously or subconsciously, and all of a sudden we're not living the way we should be living. But he said, if we would confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and renew us right back into that new image that he gave us of being an ambassador in Christ. Peter had a word and he defeated self. He defeated the lies of the adversary with that word. He's not the only one. David, the son of Jesse, he's the youngest, or the next to the last youngest out of, or is the youngest, excuse me, of of Jesse's sons. He wasn't at the battle where Samson was. But his father sends him to the front lines with some supplies, provisions for his brother, He hears Goliath's threats and he gets indignant for God. And uh, he begins to say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? And his oldest brother says in 1 Samuel 17, verse 28, and Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, And Eliab's anger was kindled against David and said, Why camest thou down hither? 
And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? You're neglecting your responsibilities. I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. Not be in the battle. You just came down to spout off your mouth. You just came down to be a spectator. Us men, we're going to have to fight. Except the men weren't fighting, were they? And David made this statement. Settle the argument. What has, what have I now done? King James says, is there not a cause? The Greek word translated, or the Hebrew word translated cause here. And I can't speak Hebrew, but somewhere along the line of Darbar. It is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word rhema. It's in the Old Testament over 1,400 times. 807 of those times, it's translated word. And David says to his brother, who was there and rejected by God when Samuel came to anoint a son of Jesse as king. David says, don't I have a word? I'm not just some kid standing here shooting off my mouth out of ego or pride. Don't I have a word? And what did that word say to him? that he was chosen to be the next king of Israel. And that word was already working. And in just a short while, if we continue reading, which we're not going to today in 1 Samuel 17, starting with verse 30, if you keep reading, you'll find that word working. How could David, a shepherd boy, go against a giant with a huge sword and shield and all this armor and not be afraid because he believed the word God gave him through Samuel. And he believed he couldn't die because he hadn't, he wasn't king yet. And God can't lie. So if God can't lie and he's got a promise, a word that he's going to be king, he went against Samson without fear, whereas the armies of Israel were afraid. God wants to give you his word, his revelation, that you are his child. You're his son, your da- his daughter, that you're a member of the body of Christ. And that because of these things, you can be, you will be used by him if you will allow him to use you. We have to let God use us. He did not violate our will to save us. He will not violate our will to use us. We have to give our will to him to be saved, and we have to surrender our will to him to be used as his conduit in prayer and in the word of God. And that includes in coming against the adversary. He sent the 70 out just like he sent the 12 in both, in Matthew doesn't say it, but it talks about the 12 being sent out. But Luke talked about not just the 12 that was sent, but 70 additional ones. 
And thus 70 came back in Luke chapter 10 and said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And Jesus said, now remember, this isn't the 12 apostles who 70 others. And Jesus uh, said to them, behold, I see, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give you, King James says, power. The Greek word is authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. That promise of protection is made to those on the offensive, not to those sitting behind some passive walls of protection, just trying to stay saved and live your own life your way. This is the call you and I have. This is what we're doing. Many have already been warring in this season that we've been in all the way back into the beginning of this year. Spiritual warfare has been going on long before this year, but it is really heightened in its focus and in its, in its uh, 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 unction from God. But it is slowly come building and building and building. And we're confronting the gates of hell that we have a promise that we're going to defeat. And many in many different places are already warring. But some have joined with me and we're going to participate with me next week, Monday through Friday nights, starting at 4 p.m. Eastern time all the way through till 10. Maybe not, they may, they may not pray all that time, but we're going to pray together. And many won't, won't just pray during that time. They'll pray at other parts of the day because God is going to bear witness with uh, to us that he is using us to come against the kingdom of darkness. Behold, I give you exousia, not dunamis. We, we already had dunamis power, but he's given us exousia, authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And if we're on the offensive... He promised that nothing would hurt us. He said, letting us see ourselves as warriors, not just sons, not just as members of the bodies of Christ, not just children of God or, 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 or parts of the body of Christ, but also as soldiers in God's army, people with authority and power, with armor that they put on, warring a good warfare through the war, word of God, not only putting on the defensive armor, but taking the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Well, what is the arena of spiritual warfare? It's the arena of prayer. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18. Supernatural prayer. In Jesus' name. We have a word. You have a word. The scripture says, no man takes this office unto himself. Hebrews 5, 1 through 5. No man takes this honor or this office unto themselves, but only those that are called of God. God has called you and he's called me to this place in his kingdom that together we might be used of him to see victory for his kingdom's sake. The time has come that those that are going to enter the kingdom and I, not not we're all born again into the kingdom of God but those that are now going to participate with the kingdom they're not just going to be a 
passive part of the kingdom. But we're going to seek first the kingdom. We're going to seek the, the demonstration of the kingdom of God in the earth, confirming the word of God. We're going to do that. And we're going to do that by his power. We're going to use the keys of the kingdom and bind and loose. We're going to bind the strong man so that we can spoil his house. We're going to, going to come against the gates of hell so that the lost can be freed to be able to consider being saved. That's what God's calling us to do. There's so much scripture on this. There is so much scripture on this. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. He made it clear that his life was one of warfare. I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. When we speak the word of faith, we're speaking the word of authority. That is using the sword of the Spirit to defeat the adversary so the lost can be saved. That's why Jesus told them, don't just rejoice because you have authority over the devil. But enjoy, rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Why? Because if my name is there, I'm obeying the first commandment. But if it's there, I've got to love others like I love myself and let him use me. As one allegory is as an army in the battle, a soldier in the battle. Another allegory is as a laborer in the field. All the same thing. It's just giving us different perspectives of the same thing. The same thing. So what is the purpose of God in all that he is doing in us and to us, with us, through us, and by us? Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, First commandment, and to them who are the called according to his purpose. Second commandment, because what is his purpose? Luke 19.10, I have come to seek and save that which is lost. So all things work together for good to them who are obeying both the first and second commandment. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, first commandment, and to them who are the called according to his purpose. We love him because he first loved us. We love others because he loved us. We, and we know, Romans eight twenty-eight 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For, verse 29, for, on this, on this account, for this cause, for this purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did, did predestinate, not control, but provide a place for us, you and me, in his plan and purpose. He also did predestinate that we might be conformed, brought into the image of his son so that we would see ourselves as sons of God. Behold, what love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. He also, for whom he did foreknow, he chose us and him, him before the foundation of the world. 
You'll find that in the first few verses of Ephesians 1. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. He ordained us to be conformed into the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many, that, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So the man Christ Jesus was the firstborn so that we could become his brethren, and we'll talk about that in the next lesson. We, are, we become his brethren because we become sons of God. And as sons of God, <laughs> and believing in him, the works that he did shall we do also, because he went to the Father. Moreover, whom he did predestinate or foreordain, them he also called with the gospel. And whom he called, and those that responded, them he also justified, removing all the past. And whom he justifies, it is his will for him to glorify them. Well, how in the world can we be glorified? By simply becoming conduits of his name, his kingdom, his will, his word, his spirit, his power, his authority, his blood, so that the lost can be saved. John chapter 15, verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. When I come into the image of the Son of God, as he chips away and removes all that way I see myself from my past and gives me this brand new image of me, that old things have passed away, behold, all things become new, and that I begin to live by that new image as he empowers me as his workmanship created on me under good works. What good works? The works of seeing the lost saved, loving them so they can be saved like I let him love me and therefore receive that love for myself to want me to be saved. In the same way I loved him, I now must let him love others through me so that I'm obeying both the first and the second commandment because the disobedient are not entering into that gate. But he knows, he knows that if he leaves me as just a, a the image of my past, that's all I see myself. He saved me, he saved me from the penalty of it, but he leaves me with the image of myself dictated by that past. He knows that I will never let him use me to do the things he wants to do. So I need and you need a revelation of the new person that I am and that you are in Christ individually and in Christ's body collectively that we might be used of God. There is so much here. And I will teach lesson two, part two, whatever it is, tomorrow at 4 p.m. And we'll begin to get into what it means to be conformed into the image of his son. Be not 
conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. So rather than being conformed to live like the world and act like the world, I'm being transformed so that I can be conformed to live by his image, to live by his word, to live by his spirit, pleasing him. He is working in you. Philippians 4, 2.13, he is working in you and he's working in me both to desire, to wish wanted desire and have a resolve and to do of his good pleasure. That is the will of God. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray for you and I pray for me and I pray for the body, parts of the body of Christ that we fellowship with on a day-to-day basis, our families, ourselves, our families, our local churches, and the body of Christ and the earth, that by the grace of God, by the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that we would receive the revelation of who he is, and who we are in him so that we will let him use us to fulfill his purpose in the earth through us as the body of Christ in the earth, sons of God and the body of Christ in the earth. God bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that the spirit of God would water this seed of revelation in your life and that you would begin to believe, receive and believe and let that revelation be lived out through you that the great greatness of the power of God to us would who believe would be able to be manifested through you and through me to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think in prayer and the ministry of the word in Jesus name. Amen.